coming up on this week's podcast. God tore this curtain, this veil, from top to bottom. Well, what's he doing? What's he saying? He's saying that the access to the most holy place, to the place where you and I could never go, because we're not Levites, we're not high priests, and we could only do it if we were once a year. The most haunting place in the world, the most powerful place, the place where God himself dwells, is now open to all. And that God tore that barrier between man and himself. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically-based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. Well, we are talking about Christianity as Jewish, as as Carl mentioned, and it does seem a little funny that it's the last week, but I think after, by the end of this, it won't seem that funny, and and we'll understand why it is that the resurrection is much is as much a Jewish thing, and the whole plan of the crucifixion, the resurrection, was thought out from the very beginning, and wasn't just something sprung on us at um, on the third day after Jesus's death. But I, hopefully, that you will see this this plan unfold before us. And when we say Christianity is Jewish here at New Hope Chapel, we're not saying that we are Jewish or that we have to be Jewish or that we have to celebrate things the way the Jews did, but that. We believe in the context and understanding the context of things. It's kind of like when you hear a story, and you hear the story told, and, and, and if you miss the context, you may misinterpret things. And so in, in a better understanding of understanding what it is that our faith is calling us to, who it is that Jesus truly is, and all of these things, we want to look at the context of Christianity. The context of Christianity is Judaism. It's not just something that started with Jesus. It was something that started from creation. In Genesis 3.15, we hear the first messianic prophecy that there will come a man, a seed from a woman. He will crush the serpent's head, but it will bruise its heel. And so this was a plan thought out from the very, very, very beginning. But we want to look at a little bit at the crucifixion. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew 27. And we'll start with verse 32. This is right before the crucifixion. Or you can look up at the screen. It says this, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. I mean, it sounds like Jesus is being invited to a mixer here, but that's not what's happening. He's, this is his crucifixion. And um, Jesus is being given wine with gall, and gall was a type of poison. And so, in a sense, this was a, they were offering him the opportunity to escape a, a, a harsh death by crucifixion that not only could last hours, but in some cases could last days. And so, here they're offering him poison to make this go quicker, but he refuses to take it. When they, they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. 
In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar and put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when a centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Well, a lot of interesting things are happening here. Spooky stuff, too. I mean, I was reading this, and and I thought about uh, Ghostbusters 3. You know, when they're all the, the ooze is in the city and all that evil is going on and then all these, things, all these paranormal activities start to happen and the Port Authority calls the mayor's office and says, uh, the Titanic just arrived, you know? And then, then this ghost ship, ship comes up, it's the Titanic and all these ghosts start walking out. I mean, really spooky stuff here. And we could talk about all, these, all the ghosts and all of that and what was going on in this resurrection and I'm sure we could spend days speculating. There's not much said about it. But the one thing that I want to focus on is in verse 51, which says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What does that mean? Why is that in there? Why is that so significant? Is it just because the earthquake happened or is there something more to it? And so this morning, we want to look at the mercy seat, the mercy seat. Last week, we looked at the Lamb of God. This morning, we want to look at the mercy seat. What is the mercy seat? Where is the mercy seat? What does it mean about this mercy seat? What does the curtain have anything to do with the mercy seat? All these questions we want to look at, but first we want to look at the context of the mercy seat. So we want to rewind about a thousand years or so to the time of the wilderness wanderings. When Israel was in the wilderness, you remember last week I said that one of the things God was doing in giving Passover, the festival of Passover to Israel, was that one, he was giving them a newness, a new culture, a new identity. They were slaves in Egypt for so long, and now he's saying, this is your new identity. You are no longer to be identified as slaves just wandering around in Egypt or serving in Egypt. You are to be a new people a new nation, a holy people, a chosen people. And the other thing that God was doing was that he was establishing a relationship with them. You know, if you think about uh, where Israel had been, and they had been in a polytheistic society, they had been bombarded with all sorts of different ideologies, and God was saying, hey, there's only one God, and I'm that God. And if you're them, you might be asking questions like, what's your name, and what do you look like, and what do you want me to do? And how do you want me to worship you? And where do you want me to worship you? And so God gradually answers all of these questions as they go on. In fact, and still is answering these questions and and teaching Israel who it is that he is and how they are to respond to him. 
And like any society that has a religion, they always have a place to worship. And so God gave them a place to worship. It was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was there in the desert, and it would eventually they would build a temple, but not until they had their own land, and not only, not only that, but not until they had Solomon to build that temple, that first temple. And so until that time, they had the tabernacle. It was made of goat skins, and it was meant to be portable in the desert because they were wandering around. The other thing that God does is that he builds a relationship with them by visiting with them and through the Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory was a physical manifestation of the presence of God. It was a pillar of fire at night, which we see here. It was also a cloud by day, which we see here as well. And the pillar of fire in the cloud, whenever it moved, that told Israel that they needed to move as well. But God gives them the tabernacle. And the tabernacle has a few components to it. It has an outer court, which we see here. It also has kind of an inner sanctuary. And that sanctuary had two components to it as well. It had the most holy place, or the holy place, and then in the furthest part to the right, over in this, in this video, it had the most holy place. And depending on who you were, and, and if you were a male, then you could go into certain spots, or if you were a priest, in other words, if you were from the tribe of Levi, then you had other rites as well. But the outer, outer courts was where sacrifices were made on the altar. There was the, um, the basin of water. And then in the holy place, that's where there was the seven-branch menorah, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, which we read about in, throughout the law and the giving of law and how, that, how the um, priests were supposed to interact. And then behind all of that was this thick curtain. And not just any curtain. It was a very thick curtain. It was curtains sewed together tapestries made, about three to six inches thick. So it wasn't just one curtain. It wasn't something that you buy at like JCPenney or something like that. It was a curtain that you sewed to a curtain that you sewed to a curtain. I'll explain why. Because in the inside was only one thing, and one thing alone. That was the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony. And the Ark of the Covenant was, is like Israel's artifact of artifacts. You may remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and how big find that was. And that was the only thing that was in that inner sanctuary, the most holy place. And it had that curtain that separated the two. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me uh, to Exodus 25, verses 10 through 22, we're going to read about this Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of God, as it's often called as well. And actually, there's a video with um, some voice as well uh, so that you can hear and see the description that's being read in Exodus 25, starting in verse 10. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it, and fasten them to its four feet, with two rings on one side, and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherub on one end and the second cherub on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. 
the cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark, and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. There, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So we get a, a really in-depth description of what this ark was supposed to look like, made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And it was a precious, precious thing to Israel. No one was supposed to touch this thing. In fact, there are a couple of stories in Scripture, Uzzah being the most famous, of people who tried to touch it. There's another story about the Philistines sending back the ark on a cart and some people got curious in the middle of the night and decided to try to open it and look in and see what was all in there. And they were struck dead. So God said, you know, don't mess around with the Ark of the Covenant. It was sacred. It was powerful. And, you know, it brings to mind, I'm sure, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones movie in the last scene where they open it to see what's inside and all those angels come and they, and they, and they destroy everyone standing there who had their eyes open and all of that stuff. Anyways, but... Nonetheless, it was very powerful. It was brought to war when Israel went to war. It was, it, when the Philistines stole it, it caused curses on them. I mean, it was, it was amazing. It was this amazing thing. And so it was not meant to be messed around with. It was where God was going to meet with Israel, and you, you, just, didn't, you just didn't go near it. You just stay away. I love when Joshua, when he's bringing people into the new land, he tells everyone, stay like hundreds of yards away. Like, don't even go near it. Let the priest go. You stay way far away because you don't want anything accidentally happening and someone, um, and someone destroying it or someone getting destroyed, I should say. You know, you might say, well, Justin, if, if this was the place where God was going to meet with Israel, why is it this like death trap? Why is it so spooky and scary? Well, it gets worse because <laughs> in, Leviticus, in Leviticus 16... Aaron, you know, the high priest. This is what God tells, tells Moses to tell his brother Aaron, who is the high priest of Israel, the first high priest. He says, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So tell him just not to just go in that room whenever he wants. And if we read Leviticus 16, we find a very prescribed um, ceremony for when Aaron and the future high priest could come into the most holy place. It was first of all they had to, first of all they had to take a a bull, and Aaron had to sacrifice the bull for himself and his family. Then he had to take two goats. One he would sacrifice, the other one he would let go. That was the scapegoat. That's where you get that word scapegoat. And then he would take the blood of the bull and put it in a bowl, and he would take another bowl with coals and also incense. And he would put the, create like a fire or a smoke in front of the Ark of the Covenant. This is all in Leviticus 16. And then he would sprinkle the blood from the bull on top of the, of the Ark between the two angels because that was the mercy seat. And so he would sprinkle that and, and atone for the sins of Israel. This all occurred on one day through the year. This was not something that was done weekly or monthly. It was done yearly on Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which occurs after Rosh Hashanah in the fall, part of the High Holy Days of Israel's Feasts. 
That was the only time that the priest was permitted to go into the Holy of Holies. And tradition says that they oftentimes they would wear bells around their garments and they would tie a rope around them. And they would go in and on the other side, priests would, would kind of take a, they would listen and they would hold on the ropes. So if that priest did something wrong and was zapped by the Lord, they could pull him out because they weren't going to go into the holy place either to go get him. He was just going to stay there. So as a mechanism to bring him out, that's what they would do. You know, I was, I was thinking about this when I had a, I had a friend um, who was an intern at the White House. And he told me, he said that uh, he was there during uh, George W. Bush's administration. And he said, you know, the Secret Service has to be everywhere the president is. In the same room, has to be always with the president. But but President Bush did not like the Secret Service to go into the bathroom with him. He liked his privacy. And so they developed a, a, a little signal. And what President Bush would do is he would whistle. And as long as he was whistling and the Secret Service could hear it, they knew everything was okay. The second those whistles stopped, they were probably in. <laughs> in the same way, these 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 priests, and I, I can't imagine, I, I don't think I would want to be the high priest during this time. I mean, it's, it's scary stuff. You know, we're talking about, and, and this, it's so strange to us because we talk about God being our friend and we get very chummy chummy with God. And to think that, no, no, this was, and you, you talk to someone, a high priest, no, to go into the holy place was a very fearful, haunting thing. And it was done once a year with trembling and awe. You say, well, Justin, this is the worst Easter message I've ever heard in my life, right? <laughs> God zapping people. and I mean, are we supposed to talk about God being our friend and God loving us and God giving us mercy and all of that? Well, the point of this, the point of the tabernacle, if you take nothing away about the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, it is that God is holy, the holiness of God. If we fail to see the holiness of God, we miss out on a lot. We've just lost the context of all of Scripture if we fail to recognize the holiness of God. I want to make a few points about the holiness of God this morning. First of all, God is completely just. God is completely just. We have a justice system here in the United States, but I would venture to say that our justice system is not really hard-line justice. I've had the chance to stand in front of a judge a couple of times for some traffic violations, and... (laughs) One wasn't my fault, I promise. That's right. Um, and, and the impression that I got standing there and also seeing the other cases that were going on at, before me was that the judge was not anxious to throw the books at anyone, but he was anxious to soften the blow as much as possible, to let people have a lesser sentence or lesser payment or a fine or take away the points or acquit people altogether. He was looking for ways to be merciful to, to them. That's not really a justice system in the sense of complete hardline justice. Uh, my brother was telling me the other day that Lindsay Lohan is getting 120 days in prison. And, and here's a woman who has been in trouble time and time again. And she's always doing something that's getting her in lots, of, in lots of trouble. And you, you, you think to yourself, really, is that all she's getting is 120 days? And then how many of you want to bet that she doesn't even spend all of it in jail? That maybe she spends 60 of it in jail and the rest of the time she's under house arrest? I mean, there's a lot of leniency that goes on in our justice system. And probably, you know, we say, we say well, they should have justice. But then when we're on 
when we're on the side of, of being in front of the judge, we want anything but justice. We want mercy. God is completely just. He is completely fair. And that's hard for us to understand, but that is something that we have to understand about the holiness of God. The second thing is God's nature is perfect. God's nature is perfect. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The word sin is hamartia. It's the Greek word hamartia. And it's often used in the context of shooting an arrow and missing a mark. We just miss it. Romans 3.23 isn't saying that you are all serial killers. It's saying that you've just fallen short of the glory of God. I remember an elderly woman, a very nice woman, asking me one time, she said, "Uh, Justin, why do I need to believe in Jesus? I do good things. I'm active in my community. I'm a good person. Why do I have to believe in Jesus? And the bottom line is, even your best isn't good enough. Even the, very, the things that you have great intentions on doing, the things that you do well, the things that you do and everyone applauds you for them, all of those good things that you do, and we all do those good things, it's just not good enough. Just not good enough. God is perfect. I'd liken it to um, what's happening in Japan. Uh, Fukushima, the power plant. As many of you know, that devastating earthquake caused a lot of problems for this power plant. It caused uh, the, the water cooling failure, to, uh, water cooling to fail, and then all of this explosions, and then radiation was leaking into the atmosphere and still is, and leaking into the water, and it's, it's a bad situation. But uranium is not compatible with human beings, right? Uranium is not compatible with human beings. Moses was so enamored with the Lord. He wanted just to bring his relationship further and further with him. And he said, God, let me see your face. And God says, nobody can see my face and live. Well, what is God saying? He's not being mean to Moses. He's saving Moses' life. He's saying, my nature is incompatible with your sinful nature. You can't come into my very presence and experience the fullness of my glory because if you do, you will die. That's just the way it is. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. And the, the, the um, curtain, the veil that was there between the holy place and the most holy place wasn't to be mean. It wasn't to say, hey, stay out because I'm better than you. It was so that people didn't die from the glory and the splendor and the awesomeness of God. That's why. You know, there's, there were some brave workers in Japan at the Fukushima plant who decided that they would go in despite the risk, the imminent risk, and they would go in there and try to cool down the reactors. But in doing so, they are exposing themselves to fatal doses of radiation that will certainly kill them in the next days, weeks, months, maybe years ahead. Unfortunately, there's not a button at the power plant that says, nice guys are entering, let's lower down their uranium dosage. Because that's the nature of uranium. It is not compatible with human beings. And so, in that kind of analogy, God's nature, without something, is incompatible with our fallen nature. But also, it's important to note, we can't leave it there, because God is completely merciful. If there's any judge you want to have mercy on you, it is the Lord. His mercy extends beyond our wildest imaginations. The very fact that God initiates 
a relationship with Israel demonstrates his mercy and love. The very fact that God brings them out of Egypt demonstrates his mercy and love. During the Passover Seder, we say this, Diyanu, you know, it would only be enough. If, if God only did this, it would be enough. If God only did this, it would be enough. And they keep going on and on and on because God continued to pour out his mercy and love on the people of Israel through that Passover story. The fact that God gives them a place to worship is a demonstration of mercy. It's a demonstration of love. The fact that God allows Aaron to go into the most holy place even once a year is a demonstration of mercy and love. The fact that a bull would be sufficient to atone for the sins of the people is a demonstration of mercy and love. And let's fast forward at a thousand years when Jesus himself is on the cross, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the ultimate demonstration of mercy and love. God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the message of the gospel. And in doing so, God did a wondrous thing. And what we read in Matthew 27 was that the moment that Jesus died, his final breath, the curtain tore from top to bottom. That three-inch thick veil three to six inches or whatever it was, tore from top to bottom. Now that's, you know, if you ever tried to tear a curtain, that's tough to do. I've never really tried, but um, maybe I did as a kid. But you, I mean, I can't imagine three inches thick of curtains. How do you tear that? Not to mention that the temple, Herod's temple, which was the temple at the time of Jesus, that veil was 60 feet tall. 60 feet tall, and it says that it tore from top to bottom. Well, first of all, we know it wasn't from humans that did this. Secondly, it was during an earthquake, but the fact that it teared from top to bottom demonstrates that God did this. This was a supernatural event, that God tore this curtain, this veil, from top to bottom. Well, what's he doing? What's he saying? He's saying that the access to the most holy place, to the place where you and I could never go, because we're not Levites, we're not high priests, and we could only do it if we were once a year the most haunting place in the world, the most powerful place, the place where God himself dwells, is now open to all. And that God tore that barrier between man and himself through the blood of Jesus and the atoning sacrifice. Take a look, if you will, with me to Hebrews 9, because Hebrews 9 spells this out for us very nicely. One of my favorite books. And I I just get so excited when we talk about the Jewish roots of Christianity because it it is like, they're like puzzles coming together. And it's starting, this big picture comes out. And we read things like Hebrews 9 and, and these stories and it all makes sense. In Hebrews 9, starting in verse 11, we read, But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that were now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. So he's calling him the high priest. He's a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, is what Steve spoke on a couple weeks ago. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves that Aaron, we talked about, had to put and had to have in his hand to enter into the most holy place. But he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean uh, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Pretty cut and clear there. And he says that he entered in once for all. And I think that's demonstrated in the tearing of the curtain, that this is a done deal. We don't need to do this year after year. It is complete. It is sufficient. It is powerful and that we can enter, we can have a relationship with the Lord Most High, Creator of heaven and earth, whose name be forever praised. Romans 3.23, I mentioned to you, says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Well, let's continue reading Romans 3. This is in the um, New American Standard Version as well. Because it says, Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So there's the idea of the Passover, that he passes over those who have the blood of the Lamb on their door. He passes over those who believe in Christ. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I love that last line. He is not only just, but he is the justifier. You might think that's kind of an oxymoron, that someone can be the, 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 the judge who demands justice, but also the one that justifies the defendant. But it says that Jesus is both the just and the justifier. He's the one that demands justice, but because of his own sacrifice, he now justifies us freely by his blood. But there's another word in here, a very interesting word, a word, a big word, propitiation. Propitiation. What in the world does propitiation mean? Well, it's used twice in the New Testament. It's used here in Romans 3, 25, a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And it's also used in Hebrews 9.5. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But there, there the writer of Hebrews is talking about the Ark of the Covenant. I don't know about you, I don't see the word propitiation in Hebrews 9.5 like I do in Romans 3. That's because in the Greek... It's this word here. It's holisterium. And that word is the word for mercy seat. So the same word that's used for mercy seat in Hebrews 9.5 is the same word that's used in Romans 3.25. So we could say it this way. Which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a mercy seat in his blood through faith. That is the mercy seat. 
So not only is Jesus the high priest, not only is the blood he bringing in a high, the, his blood that the high priest needs to bring in to satisfy the justice of God, but also he is the mercy seat where the blood is being poured out. Isn't that exciting? God fulfills, Jesus fulfills these prophecies over and over again. He is the mercy seat. He is offering to himself. He is offering to the Lord himself for the forgiveness and atonement of our sins. It gets better. It gets better. Take a look with me in the book of John. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 11. This is at at the resurrection. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. In other words, the angels are sitting in the exact position that they would have been sitting on the atonement cover looking down, probably wings outstretched, and there she sees them, one at the head and one at the foot. That gives me chills. I get really excited about that. And so what is it saying? It's saying this is the mercy seat. This is the mercy seat. Jesus' sacrifice is the mercy seat. It's done. The curtain's been torn, and this is, this is the culmination of all these things. And those angels then get up. They don't stay there because the mercy seat is in Christ. He is the mercy seat. He is the atoning sacrifice so that wherever he is, there we should also be. What is the point? Well, there's a lot of points here. And and actually, I want to point out one thing is that their posture, the angel's posture. You know, notice how in, um, in Exodus, it told when they built this Ark of the Covenant, the angels were supposed to look down at the atonement cover, at the mercy seat. Well, there's a, why, why is that? Well, we're told in a couple, of, uh, a couple of passages that angels are curious, looking into things about redemption. There's a song called, Holy, Holy is What the Angels Sing, a hymn. And it says, Holy, Holy is What the Angels Sing, and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when I sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings, for angels never felt the joys that our salvation brings. You know, I just imagine that they were as baffled as anyone else. You know, Mary comes looking for him and they say, he's risen, just like he said. But nonetheless, they're still perplexed that the God of the universe, the creator, would lay down his own life and provide redemption. It was very symbolic that these golden angels looked down on the mercy seat where the blood was being poured, knowing that that was going to satisfy God's justice. Here are angels that have never experienced the mercy of God, baffled, amazed by what Jesus has just done on the cross and now in an empty tomb. Well, what an amazing encouragement for us today. And you might ask the question, so what, Justin? So what? What, What's the big deal? What does this have to do with me, this mercy seat? Why should I even care about the Jewish roots and all that you've said, even though it makes sense, it kind of follows along, it paints a pretty picture, and the puzzles sort of fit together? And the answer is this. God did this so that we could have a relationship with him. That's the bottom line. God opened up heaven so that we could have 
a relationship with the eternal God. That's what it's all about. People in Moses, Moses would have killed to be in our position. To see the glory of God this way and to have that relationship, that unveiled and unbridled relationship with the Lord, that will only get better in eternity. And I think there are a lot of people that love the idea of God. I think Easter's, Easter churches are filled, packed. If you drive down Route 2, you'll see all the, the cars lining around because this is awesome. To celebrate Jesus, to celebrate what God did, that's what we do. We like that. It touches our hearts. But I think people stop there. People don't have that relationship with God for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think oftentimes they're afraid. They're afraid of what, what it is that God might ask them to do. We should fear God. Fearing God is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning of wisdom is what the Proverbs say. But we shouldn't be afraid to have that relationship with God. I, I look out and I see many of you who are here and who could say, you know, I'm so glad that I have that relationship with God. Do I know, did I know what God would take me through? Did I know where he would bring me? I didn't know where God would bring me when I said, Lord, come into my life. But I'm so glad I made that choice. That was the best decision I've ever made. And I have so much joy because of that. The purpose of this story, the purpose of the death of Christ, is that you have that relationship that you can come to God, that he can speak directly to you, that he can infuse your life with the promised Holy Spirit. That is the gospel message. That is Easter. And if you haven't made that decision, if you're you're one of those that wants to stand outside the tabernacle, it's a nice place, but I really don't want to come in. I'm not talking about church. I'm not talking about coming to church or giving money or anything like that. I'm talking about a relationship with God. It's not about rituals. It's not about doing this and praying this many times a day and saying this a certain way. It's simply about having a friend in Jesus and coming to him and letting him take control of your life. It is, as Israel did, saying, I believe what you say is true. I'm going to put the blood of the lamb on my doorpost so I'm saved. In the same way, we need to say to the Lord, Lord, take control of my life. That's all you have to say. Lord, take control of my life. Let the Lord take that control. If you have not made that decision today, make that decision today. Say to the Lord, Lord, I'm done. I'm done with trying to take control of my life. I know I'm, I've fallen short. I know I need your salvation. Lord, I don't even know what all this means yet. But I want you to teach me and to make me like you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes, and you'll get the next podcast in your sleep. Yeah,